Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. And though we will be focusing on verse 8, I'll read verses 1 through 8. God's word from the New Testament, give your attention to the reading of it, Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let us pray. So what's your favorite ending? Out of all the novels that you have read, movies that you have watched, and TV series you have binged, which ending stands out as remarkable, unforgettable, or just plain superb? Well, most of our stories conclude in typical ways. The couple gets married, the detective figure out, figures out who done it, the hero returns home safe after winning. Now, occasionally there is the sad endings where the main character dies or loses, the villain gets away, or love fails. But then there are those closing, clothing, closings that are kind of out of the blue. They're abrupt, they're weird, and very unsatisfying. Sometimes these, these can work, but most often they're frustrating and upsetting. You walk away grousing. What a horrible ending. A great ending is like a perfect dessert, rich and satisfying, while a bad one has you throwing your shoes at the TV. So then, how good is Mark's ending? Or better, where does Mark end? Does he finish here at verse 8? If he does, it does seem rather odd. To conclude with the lady's fear and no resurrection appearances, this feels abrupt. More so, in Greek, the last word in verse 8 is for. For they were afraid, in Greek is literally, they were afraid for. To end a sentence, even a book with a conjunction for, can this be proper grammar? Or does Mark finish with another 12 lines of verses 9 through 20? What is Mark's ending? Well, for a long time, nearly every printed Bible had verses 9 through 20 as the ending of Mark. From the 1500s through the 20th century, Bibles published in the vast array of languages, from Luther's German Bible to the King James Version, finished Mark with this longer ending. 
And they did so without any footnotes or notations that the ending might be different. And the reason for this consistency was that in 1516, a scholar by the name of Erasmus published a Greek New Testament, which is called the Textus Receptus, and this Greek New Testament became the basis for the translations since the Reformation. Moreover, Erasmus's text was based quite literally on hundreds of Greek manuscripts. In fact, the majority of Greek and Latin manuscripts we have finish Mark in verse 20. Thus, we can go back further. Throughout the Middle Ages, church lectionaries and scholarly works included the longer ending. For close to a thousand years plus, the church has considered verse 20 to be Mark's ending and included these verses in its worship and discipleship. However, church tradition is not the litmus test for scripture. Instead, as we confess, the Holy Spirit inspired the original text written by the apostle or prophet. Therefore, the authoritative text is primarily the original book or letter by the inspired author. And a close second in authority are all the copies that accurately and faithfully preserve the original. The best and most authentic copies of Mark are the authoritative standard to determine what Mark wrote under the Spirit's inspiration and what he did not. Hence, despite the long-standing church consensus, in the 1800s, two new Greek manuscripts were discovered. And these two manuscripts displayed a high quality of textual transmission from the earliest times. And they, they preserved an accurate form of the text back to the second and third centuries. As well as these two superior manuscripts ended Mark at verse 8. Verses 9 through 20 were not included in them. Moreover, the discovery of these manuscripts brought to light evidence from the early church. The consensus that Mark ended in verse 20 from the Middle Ages was not a consensus in the early church. In fact, in the early church, there were three known endings for Mark. The first one was verse 8, which we'll just call the ending. Second, there's a shorter ending, which is a verse that is added between verse 8 and verse 9. You can see it in the footnote of your ESV. Third, there is the longer ending, which is verses 9 to 20. Now, no scholar considers the shorter ending to be authentic, so we can disregard it. Yet the longer ending was attested very early in the church. Writing about 180 A.D., Irenaeus quotes verse 20 as belonging to the Gospel of Mark. About that same time, one of his disciples, Tatian, wrote a gospel harmony and included the longer ending. Also, in about 155 AD, Justin the Martyr possibly alluded to verse 19, though this is not certain but likely. The longer ending, therefore, was used by some church fathers as part of Mark. Other church fathers, though, Differed. Most notably is the Bishop of Caesarea, 
which is located on the Mediterranean coast in Palestine, the bishop named Eusebius. And Eusebius is known as one of the most learned scholars on the biblical canon. And in the early 300s AD, Eusebius wrote that the longer ending was not in all the copies of the Gospel of Mark. He said that, quote, the accurate copies make the end of Mark at they were afraid. In almost all the copies of Mark, the gospel ends here, unquote. Thus, Eusebius did not include the longer ending in his canon. Thus, several other church fathers repeat Eusebius's remark, and a few other fathers, like Origen and Clement of Alexandria, show no evidence of the longer ending. Eusebius, though, also records another detail about Mark. He wrote that Mark was the first to preach the gospel in Egypt and establish churches in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. And those two early Greek manuscripts, which did not have the longer ending, come from the area of Alexandria. In fact, the city of Alexandria, as you might know, with its famous library, had a long history of classical scholarship and preservation of text. Hence, the biblical manuscripts and texts connected to Alexandria were produced by scribes who worked assiduously to preserve an accurate form of the text. The scribes of the Alexandria text produced manuscripts that were carefully preserved and relatively pristine. And those two manuscripts, without the longer ending, found in in the 1800s, come from these scribes. On the other hand, the majority of manuscripts that do have the longer ending are connected to the city of Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. These family of manuscripts date from the 5th or 6th century or later, and they are known for smoothing away harsh language. They combine divergent readings, and particularly they harmonize gospel differences to make them more alike. Therefore, the manuscripts connected to the Byzantine Empire are greater in number, but inferior in quality. And it was these Greek manuscripts that Erasmus used for his 1516 Greek text. The higher number of them, then, is no sign of superiority. The superior and more accurate manuscripts for the Gospel of Mark come from the Alexandrian family, and they end Mark in verse 8. Besides, there's also other witnesses, ancient witnesses, to the verse 8 ending. For example, the oldest Latin text that we have ends in verse 8, as well as the Old Arminian, Sinaitic, uh, the Syriac, and Coptic translations. Hence, the longer ending is not part of Mark. He's not the author of these verses. Rather, under the Spirit's inspiration, Mark finished his gospel in verse 8 as the true ending of his authoritative gospel. In fact, scholarship shows that the longer ending was most likely written between 120 and 150 A.D. and soon attached to copies of Mark to begin its circulation. Yet there's another basis on which to consider the longer ending. That is, how well does it fit Mark's style, and is it a good ending to the gospel? 
The manuscript evidence is against the longer reading. How about the literary evidence of the text itself? Well, to begin with, it's hard to tell in English translation, but after reading the entire Gospel of Mark, the writing style of verse 9 and following is markedly different. The way Mark writes and how verses 9 to 20 are written do not match very well. For example, uh, or for example, an author typically uses a fairly consistent vocabulary and writing style. Sure, there's some variation, but you can tell the difference between Isaiah, how he writes, and how Jeremiah does. And the same difference is felt between the 16 chapters of Mark and the longer ending. Thus, in these brief 12 verses of verses 9 through 20, there are 17 words and constructions found only in the longer ending and nowhere else in Mark. There's an additional five more words or constructions found nowhere else in the New Testament. In fact, in verse 9, the phrase, on the first day of the week, is not a biblical construction. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, how you refer to a day of the week follows a consistent pattern, which verse 9 does not follow. Next, there's the question of how well does the longer ending conclude, conclude Mark's gospel? Is the longer ending a good one or a bad one? Well, there are several pa- factors that have to be judged as poor. For one, verse 9 introduces Mary Magdalene as if for the first time. We've met Mary Magdalene three times before in Mark's gospel, but verse 9 mentions the seven demons as if we're first learning about her. Besides, this phrase about the demons appears to be taken from Luke's gospel, a harmonization. Next, the angel tells the women in verse 7 to go to Galilee where Jesus will meet them. And yet the longer ending shows no interest in Galilee. It doesn't fulfill what the angel said. Likewise, the angel underlined Peter in verse 7, but Peter gets no mention in the longer ending. Mark has been all about promise and fulfillment, but the promises of verse 7 are not fulfilled in the longer ending. The longer ending does not flow well from verses 1 through 8 of chapter 16. Finally, there's the content or the theology of the longer ending. Now, most of the content of the longer ending doesn't vary much from the rest of the New Testament. But a few things things are out of kilter, particularly concerning the signs of verse 17. This verse says that miraculous signs will follow or will accompany those who believe. That is, all believers, every saint will be able to do these miraculous signs. But the rest of the New Testament links miraculous signs only to the apostles and a few other special officers. Signs mark the apostolic ministry alone, and they do not belong to the general believer. Moreover, Mark has been fairly cautious about signs. In chapter 8, when the Pharisees asked for a sign, Jesus announced that no sign would be given to this generation. 
Then in chapter 13, Jesus said that the false prophets and false Christ would reford signs and wonders. Sure, when the apostles ministered in chapter 6, they cast out demons and healed the sick. But post-resurrection, Mark only mentions the preaching of the gospel as the apostolic ministry. The longer ending has an improper interest in signs, which matches the apocryphal text of the second century and not the New Testament. Additionally, two of the signs listed here are especially problematic. First, verse 18 says they will pick up serpents with their hands. Now, this sign has no parallel in the whole Bible. Moses' staff into a snake isn't the same. In Acts 28, Paul gets bit by a viper and survives, but this is very different from holding a snake and it not harming you as a sign of God. In fact, in the Greek world, snake handling like this was rather common in stories and art. That is, gods or heroes would hold snakes that would not harm them as signs of their divinity or protection of the divine. Pagan magicians would handle snakes to impress the crowds and earn a living. Thus, snake handling is a pagan sign. It's a cheap parlor trick to wow the public. This is not a biblical sign or the purpose of biblical signs, but it is a compromise with Hellenistic culture. Therefore, as you may know, in the 1900s, in the American rural South, based on this verse, certain Pentecostal churches began to practice snake handling as a sign of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. But such a practice borrows from ancient paganism and not biblical Christianity. Second, there's the sign of drinking deadly poison and not being harmed. Again, this is completely unique in all of Scripture. Elisha Elisha healing the poison soup is not an accurate parallel. In fact, even in pagan literature, this drinking deadly poison is not exactly quite matched. Now, in the Odyssey, Hermes gives Odysseus an herb so that Circe's drugged food doesn't harm him, But then again, this is not quite the same thing. Besides, deliberately putting your life in danger by drinking poison uh, as a sign of the gospel is not really in line with scriptural truth. Sure, God delivers his people from danger when they're persecuted. But to put your own life in danger to prove God's power is putting God to the test. This sign resembles more so what the devil tempted Jesus to do when he said, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will catch you. And Jesus responded, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The longer ending then is theologically problematic, yet it's out of joint with the truth of Holy Scripture. Therefore, to rightly exclude verses 9 through 20 from Mark is not a loss, but a gain. The end of Mark in verse 8 frees us from a piece of human writing. 
which even though written very early, was not inspired by the Spirit, and so is not authoritative for our faith and life. And yet even with the confident ending of Mark in verse 8, we still have to admit it does seem abrupt. Indeed, many scholars and teachers have went with the longer ending merely because they thought Mark could not end his gospel with the women being afraid. Verse 8 has been judged by some to be a bad ending as proof that Mark was not a very good writer. Of course, after reading all of Mark, we know that Mark is excellent at his craft. With the Spirit's inspiring influence, Mark can tell a story, the best story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then, is verse 8, or how then is verse 8 just the ending we need for our faith in Jesus Christ? Well, as you may remember, fear has been a theme in Mark. People being afraid of Christ has been irregular. And the disciples' fear of Jesus arose after demonstrations of his power. When Jesus revealed his identity as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, and particularly as Jesus disclosed his divinity as the Son of God, people were afraid. After Jesus calmed the sea and wind, the disciples were afraid. Jesus liberated the demoniac from legion, and the townspeople saw Jesus and were scared of him. The Lord walked on water out to the disciples, shining like a ghost at night, and they were terrified. The bleeding woman was healed by Jesus and then came before him in fear. As Jesus radiated his divine glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter spoke nonsense because he was afraid. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection for his apostles, But they did not understand what he was talking about, and they were too afraid to ask him. Again and again, Jesus revealed his majesty as the Son of Man and his divinity as the Son of God. And the disciples and others marveled in fear. Fear, then, marks the manifestation of Jesus' glory. It includes awe and wonder that God is near. The women just witnessed the empty tomb. They heard from the angel that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. The man from Nazareth was resurrected and alive forevermore. The women's fear then testifies to the glory and divinity of Jesus as the resurrected Son of Man and Son of God. During much of his ministry, Jesus kept his identity and majesty concealed. When demons declared him to be the Son of God, he silenced them. But with the resurrection, there is no more silence. As an open and public declaration, the resurrection proclaims Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of Man and Son of God. Before the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, we too rightly bend the knee in godly fear, in astounding awe, and in humble piety. Additionally, Mark concludes with the angelic evidence of Christ's certain and historical resurrection, 
which fulfills the repeated promises of Jesus. For more than half of Mark's gospel, Jesus again and again has told the disciples he would die, but be raised. His resurrection was the climatic finish of Christ's promises. The cross was necessary, but the goal was the resurrection. And yet the disciples could not understand this. In chapter 9, Mark even wrote that Peter, James, and John did not understand what Jesus meant by saying he would be raised from the dead. Therefore, for Mark to conclude with the resurrection is the perfect ending. It shows the fulfillment of Christ's word. It publishes the vindication of Jesus as dying as a ransom for our sins. Mark opened his gospel with the sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to conclude with the resurrection, Mark signals this is the whole of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul stated the gospel as Christ died for our sins was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, which is exactly what Mark covers in his gospel. Post-resurrection appearances might be good. The other gospels record them, but they're not necessary. The angel's announcement, he is risen. This is a beautiful exclamation point on this inspired gospel. Finally, as the resurrection fulfills Christ's word and promises, as it reveals his glory as the Son of Man and Son of God, then it is also the ideal call for us to believe. As you'll remember, Mark has especially shown the slowness of the disciples, their struggle to grow in faith. The women not telling anyone about the resurrection, at least initially, is a misstep of faith. Well, good literature, though, gets you interested in the character. Good writing makes you want to emulate the noble characters and not be like the ignoble ones, but it does so without ever saying, be like or don't be like. It doesn't get preachy. Well-written stories employ positive and negative examples to move and shape its readers. So Mark has favored negative examples to impact us. Sometimes, as you know, we learn more from bad examples than we do good ones. Well, over and over, the disciples' slowness has caused us to slap our foreheads and say, what's wrong with you guys? The women's failure to obey the angel at first then makes us flabbergasted. And so the women running off from the empty tomb is Mark's powerful call for us to believe. As we roll our eyes at the women, we are left without excuse if we do not believe. Their flub up makes the true and reliable word of Jesus obvious. Their misstep makes the glory of Christ's resurrection shine brighter. Thus, without saying it explicitly, this ending moves us toward and creates in us faith. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, and it came true. Of course, then, 
Jesus met with his disciples in Galilee. It's so obvious that to record it would be to overcook the ending. And no one likes well-done meat. For they were afraid. This makes us part of the story. It calls us to believe in the sure word of Christ. Constantly reliable and enduring forever. It moves us to bend the knee in reverence at the awesome glory of the resurrected Jesus. The Son of Man and the Son of God who died and rose for us. As well as it empowers us with boldness as a church to now herald the gospel to the nations. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. Thank God then for the excellent ending of Mark at verse 8. It's just what the doctor of the Holy Spirit prescribed for our souls, for our faith and life, so that we may ever magnify and grow in faith in God's glory in Jesus Christ, who died and was raised for our salvation. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.